Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the roundtable discussion from our April UX research event, where you'll hear from David Moore, Anita English, and Juliet Stinson. This is a more casual, remote user experience research roundtable conversation series. They'll be covering topics such as commonly used research methods, a big thanks to Lucid for sponsoring this meetup. And now, onto the discussion. Welcome to Statistically Significant, the monthly UX research discussion group. It's sort of a roundtable discussion group, so if you have things to say, they may get recorded. Let's go ahead and kick things off with introductions. I'm David Moore. I'm the UX research manager at Digicert. I teach UX design and research at Columbia at a boot camp. That's who I am. With me is Juliet Stinson and Anita. Would you both like to introduce yourselves? Anita, you can go ahead and go first. Hi, I'm Anita English. I'm an associate researcher at Vivint. I have been there. My two-year anniversary just passed. It's been great. I have learned a lot from my team. I continue to learn a lot. I love them very, very much. And I'm in Utah, if that wasn't already clear. And Juliet, can you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Juliet Stinson. Um, I work currently at Digicert as a UX researcher. I've been there for almost five months. And I just recently transitioned from learning experience research and design. I was doing that for a couple of years. Uh, that's what I have my master's in is instructional technology and learning sciences. So I was doing that for a couple of years and now I just transitioned to, into research exclusively. So um, that's me. Yeah. So we're your hosts, but this is, as I mentioned earlier, a discussion group. So we're hoping we can have a conversation with anyone and everyone contributing to that end. It would be awesome if people want to turn on their video so we can see your faces, get all those nonverbal cues. But yeah, I think what else do we mention? Oh yeah. We, so we started off as just like our own thing, but we recently got adopted by Product Hive, which is awesome. Um, that gets us exposure, that gets us more members, which is great. But there are sort of like growing pains associated with that. So bear with us as we kind of like adopt this format to a broader audience. So um, to start things off, I mean, this is essentially about like exploring UX research questions, sharing knowledge, collaborating, commiserating. Well, cool. So what we have on the docket today, um, we'd like to discuss with y'all um, commonly used research practice method. And then we'd also like to talk about best practices for research proposals um, for any of you that are doing that with your course. We could talk about what people are currently doing, doing in terms of research methods. And then when you go to like start a research project with your company, what are you currently doing in order to select methods appropriately? What other things factor into your research proposals? Um, how formal is your research proposal process? Basically, today is all about methods. But I think before we get into that, we can just start with any questions from anybody who's new here or returning, just sort of have open discussion. Are there any things that people want to discuss other than what's on the agenda? I just really am interested in the research side of UX design. My background's in biology research, and I'm transitioning into UX design. So I would love to just hear more about that. Awesome. And you said you're going to a boot camp, right? Yes, I, I'm in a career foundry boot camp right now, but I'm also trying to get some real life experience by helping my friend out. She's starting up a swimwear company. And so I've been able to help her out with some UX design for that process. Awesome. That's great. It's fantastic when you're first starting out to have a real world project to work on to sort of drive your portfolio. Maybe we can open it up to some of the more experienced members here. Do you have any advice for Lane, who's just starting off in her UX career, transitioning from biology research background? I would recommend also as when I started 
There is so much information. It's sometimes overwhelming. Try when now you're in a in in a program, so it will be easier to kind of follow. If you have a question, you can either send it. I don't know if there's like if you're part of the Discord group or Slack groups or something. A lot of UXers are are very welcoming to the community, and you can always ask, or you can Google it. But there's always there's always someone to talk to, and I think brainstorming when you're Finding difficulties in UX is the best way to kind of figure out where to go. So that would be my advice. I love that. That's great. I would say like always be looking up and asking questions where you can. I think my advice would be uh, don't be afraid to say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. Don't feel like you have to be a walking dictionary. It's not feasible. And just make sure you actually follow up with people. But I find that manages expectations, allows you to really give a good detailed response, which kind of secures your spot as the uh, expert. So I will just piggyback on that. If you find yourself in a pickle, just say it depends and say, and that's it. <laughs> like, like, and figure it out. It depends and then ask questions. That's, that's the best way to go around it. That's so funny. That's literally verbatim what Anita was saying right before we started this call. I was like, we're going to talk about method selection. She was like, well, it just depends. <laughs> it is. It does. Especially in the research, in the UX research department. <laughs> Speaking of, when you're starting out, there are so many resources. Weeding through is almost as much of a challenge as finding resources, maybe more of one. Are there any sort of like, I, I think that you hit it right on, on the head, Yale, when, when you have like a community you can draw from, whether that's a Slack team or a group like this one, that's a really good place to sort of like get answers to questions. Individuals too, right? If you can find one specific person who's maybe a step ahead in their career and kind of latch onto them as a mentor, and then one person who's maybe several steps ahead in their career and latch onto them as well and get it like a direct resource instead of like a group resource, that can be really helpful too. But are there any other online resources that people use that they found helpful as just sort of like a, a catch-all, NNG is a go-to for beginners, I think. Are there any things like that that you would recommend for Lane or anyone else who's starting off in their career? At Jane, we have a Baymard Premium subscription. So Baymard is a repository of design best practices and principles. And for me, I reference it a lot when I have questions that I don't have. I don't know the answer to. I don't have time to uh, research. And I usually say, well, let's default to Baymard, which shows what all these other e-commerce companies are doing. And it's just great start just to shortcut a lot of research if you don't have time or budget. You know, if someone like Amazon is doing it, I just kind of assume hopefully they've put a lot of investment into it and I can kind of write it until I can get my own research. It's kind of the 80-20 rule, right? It can get you 80% of the way there. Baymart is what it's called. It's only like 1500 bucks a year. Just get your company to pay for it. <laughs> nice. I've been speaking a lot, but I'm just going to throw in there that I really like listening to podcasts, maybe not for specific information, but just to kind of have a bunch of different ideas and keywords in my head. And then I can like reach into it and go and search deeper for stuff that are relevant. I, I just enjoy listening to those. There is one that is called Awkward Silences, which is mostly research focused. And one, the other one that I would recommend, okay, I'll come back to you guys about, yeah, Awkward Silences is one, and in the Sea of Harry Potter podcast, I'm looking for the UX podcast. Oh, Mixed Methods. <laughs> mixed Methods is Mixed great. Methods, yeah, is a good one too. That's fantastic. Awesome. 
Awesome. I'm seeing some things getting dropped. Daniel, thank you. Usability.gov, lawsofux.com. Great resources for beginners and experienced professionals. Love it. All right. Let's go ahead and transition to our main topic. So today we're talking about methods, methods we use commonly and how we select them. Is there anyone who wants to first um, start by just describing what your methods landscape looks like at your current organization or at a previous organization that you thought was interesting? We frequently use three main categories of methods, surveys, testing, and interviews. Surveys, we do tons of customer surveys. We probably run several a month on different topics for various groups internally. We use Qualtrics to do that. Sometimes we run surveys with outside bases as well. So if we're trying to get more of an outsider's perspective, not one that's colored by people's existing experience with Vivint, we'll, we'll go pay for samples somewhere else. But big advantage, obviously, of surveying our own customer bases, we don't have to pay to do that, um, which is nice. And we try not to abuse that privilege and not, not survey people too frequently. So surveys, interviews, uh, you know, in more normal times, uh, one of the best types of interviews we like to do is going into our customers' homes and seeing uh, the Vivint system in their home. For anybody not familiar with Vivint, we, we sell an alarm system, cameras, and smart home products. Uh, so we like to see how those things are actually used in people's homes and, and interview them there when we can. Uh, over the past year, that's obviously shifted mostly to video uh, type interviews, but we also do phone interviews and things like that as well. Uh, and then testing, a, a whole variety of different types of testing. So uh, concept testing, product testing, prototype testing, digital, and hardware prototypes because we make uh, hardware products as well as uh, an app. As I said, concept testing, name testing, we're often asked to help inform naming decisions about products and features and that kind of thing. Those are our three big categories, is, is surveys, interviewing and testing. And then within those, is that there's a whole variety of stuff. Within surveys, there's a whole variety, you know, there's satisfaction stuff, there's more exploratory, there's how do you use X, there's trying to understand the importance of different features, you know, a whole lot of stuff there. And then there's always more one-off stuff. So we've done pricing research before. We've done feedback on colors for products and things like that, you know, any number of other things. So so that's kind of a very high-level overview of, of the main methods that we use. But we're always, we get new requests and then we have to figure out some new way of doing it. So so those are kind of our, our go-tos that I'd say 90% of our product projects are probably in those three categories. But nice. That's a fantastic overview. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Are there any methods that you're hoping to add in the future, things that you're like looking to expand to? Are you happy with the status quo or are you looking to like build that up in any way? Are there any that are working poorly that you want to eliminate? What does the future of methods look like at Vivint? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I mean, honestly, I think there's always a tendency and therefore a danger to just keep doing the same stuff over and over again. You get good at it, you get comfortable with it, you know how to do it. it. It's top of mind because you've done it before a million times. And so it's very easy to always go back to the same methods. And the reality is a lot of the time that's still the right answer. It doesn't mean it's always the wrong answer. But yeah, there's always this danger that you get comfortable and, and complacent and you don't investigate new ways that might be better of doing certain things. And on our team, we've got some people that push us to try new methods more often, people who've tried other things in the past and we'll bring those to bear. I mean, that's last time around, we talked about the benefits of switching jobs and that kind of thing. And I think one of the benefits of having people switch in, having worked somewhere else is, is that, you know, they bring their experiences from previous places. So, so Dan, who's on here, you know, he's pushed us to do heuristic evaluations, for example. That's something that we kind of done some of recently. Uh, Stefan's done a number of Carno analysis uh, studies in the past, which is a feature analysis method. And so he's an expert on that, which none of the rest of us have really done before coming to Vivint. And so, you know, that that helps certainly, you know, like I said, we're, we're pushed as much by 
being asked to test and research new things uh, as we are by, you know, being proactive about it. Sometimes people just come to us with a question that can't be answered with our existing methodologies and we have to think of new ways of doing things. So that, that helps us. So I think, as I say, we'd like to always be putting new stuff in the mix. We're actually just going through a process right now of kind of building out our career ladder. So we have clarity about progression of event in the research field. And one of the things we're building as part of that is a list of research methods. And we're realizing that's a very long and never-ending list to some extent. Um, but that's helping us to think about, okay, which of these things do we use regularly? Which ones might we use? Which ones are we unlikely to use because of the set of skills and tools that we have available to us? And that, that's helpful too, just to, to really brainstorm what is that longer list and should we be thinking of some of those? So I think that will be a nice output from going through that exercise. Awesome. That's great. Let's hear from someone else. How about Justin? Do you mind if I pick on you? Do you want to tell us what research looks like at Folks right now? I know you're a product designer. Are you currently doing research yourself? You have a research team that partners with you. What does it look like? Yeah, so we're a startup. So our design team does a little bit of everything. So we're a design team of two, me and one other person. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're trying to get involved in a lot of that research. Um, you know, it's still fairly new at my organization, that's for sure. Um, both of us have been hired on in the past couple of months. And so right now it's kind of a lot of just grasping kind of what's going on, um, what research has been done and things like that. But a lot of what we're looking to start doing is is going to be a lot of that, like usability testing, um, you know, some of that stuff like pricing models and things like that. We'll also testing some of those will also fall on us and things like that. So it's an interesting landscape though, because so this is um this is an LGBTQ healthcare startup. You know, when you're working with kind of underrepresented groups, there's always like, a large need for things, you know, for things like this. And, and especially in healthcare, it's something that's going to affect their lives, um, literally. <laughs> and so there's a lot of care that we take, you know, we think about the accessibility of, you know, how how is this working? Um, but then also thinking about, you know, the emotional aspects of what people are are going through when they're when they're going through a, you know, whether an onboarding or, you know, whatever experience that might be, you know, not just thinking about are they getting through this in a, you know, in an efficient way or whatever, however we're trying to test that, but making sure that we're understanding it at an emotional level as well. Awesome. That's fantastic. That's an exciting problem space to be tackling. Also a, an exciting company size. I love that sort of like two-person design team that has to do the research themselves. It seems like most of the time it, it does sort of start with usability testing. I find that that is so critical and so fruitful in terms of methods. And I don't know, for whatever reason, it does seem to be the case that like at every company, when I, even when I was doing UX design, we were always doing usability testing as part of that. I mean, it's just critical to have that as part of the UX process. I'm curious if you do something differently in the exploration as a researcher, as a UXer, do you find yourself doing using different methodologies or doing some or doing the same methodologies but differently during the exploration phase? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a lot of the same methods apply. Um, I think um, I think the thing that you, that's really important though is that emotional aspect because I think especially when for something that's as serious as like healthcare and for you know marginalized groups. It's something that in any sort of structure that, you know, a marginalized group has experienced, there's probably some hurt there potentially because the system broke down somewhere and, you know, therefore they were affected in a big way. And so, and so for, for us, a lot of it is kind of, is coming at it with a sort of sensitivity of, you know, taking it from like a, we're a new startup where, you know, we're open to feedback and we really want you to tell it, you know, really building with the community is kind of what it comes down to um, and not trying to make any assumptions about, you know, anything. Justin, are y'all building personas out? That's on our roadmap. We haven't quite gotten around to it yet. I mean, as, as startups go, there's always a lot to do. But yeah, that's definitely on our roadmap in the next couple of weeks. I wonder, I'm curious how many people are still doing personas. We're doing personas right now at Digicert, but I am so conflicted about the whole process. I mean, whether you're at a startup or you're at an established company, it takes a huge amount of time 
the amount of resources where it's not just a concern if you're at a startup. How how do you feel about journey maps and, and not can not necessarily have the persona, but have this type of person is doing this journey kind of thing instead? Yeah, there's a lot of options, right? Personas, empathy maps, journey maps, jobs to be done. We've taken like a, I don't know, at Digistore, we're, we're doing like kind of a weird approach to like, a, it's like a blend of personas and jobs to be done, where it's like a task-based persona so that it like at least feels a little more grounded than sort of a traditional persona where it's so much of it is about inspiring empathy rather than sort of like task analysis. I, I am curious who else is doing personas still. Lauren, still into it? Yeah, I've done personas twice. So once at a startup and again at Bluehost. And I've had a lot of success with them. They've been really socialized throughout both places. They've also steered a lot of product decision making. I mean, I can tell you a little bit about it now. And then if you want to catch up some other time, I don't want to take up all of the time of the meeting. No, no, go for it. Yeah, let's hear, like, yeah, give us your thoughts on personas real quick. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I've had a lot of success with them because both times I had a huge amount of buy-in and I had a huge amount of um, participation, not just for personas, but for all the research I've done at Bluehost. Anyone who wanted to contribute was invited to contribute at whatever their bandwidth allowed. And so that involved, you know, people signing up for two or three of the 20-some interviews we did. It involved everyone being involved in the analysis after the interview, and then also creating a joint affinity diagram together, because that you know affinity diagrams are a really good collaborative sense making tool. Because we had so many people involved, I think there were. I might get these numbers wrong. It's on my portfolio. If uh, mm-hmm. you want to take a look, I think it's something like eleven designers, two creatives, um, input from the research team, as well as. Um, one product manager was involved uh, and they're all involved to different degrees. And because, you know, everyone was involved, like one, I knew exactly what we needed from the interviews that I could really craft a script that, that helped people from product, from design, from marketing. Um, and then after that, you know, with the sense-making process, we had just a huge amount of buy-in because if everyone's working on this giant wall, you know, they're like, oh, I understand where this finding came from because I can see it on the wall right in front of me. Um, and then um, and then we've just given huge amounts of presentations. So my partner with the research projects, you know, at the time was a um, senior design manager and then he became the head of design. And so because he was super involved in the project, you know, before he t- took on a huge amount of responsibility, um, those findings like continue to resonate within the organization. Awesome. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Buy-in is so critical and making sure that people understand what you're doing and what the process is from the outset is really an important part, I think, of making it a successful persona project. How about Sean? You want to tell us what research is like at Jane? What methods do you use there? Methods? I was going to jump in real quick on the personas. Sure, yeah, yeah. Because my methods are pretty similar to what Jan said as far as surveys, interviews, and testing. Mm -hmm. But I was just about to unmute to talk about personas because we did yeah. personas like three or four years ago. And I've just been recently getting pinged by my new boss to update them. And I'm pushing back really hard. Yeah. A, because it's just me. And it really is a huge time uh, restraint. We built personas out um, when there were none existing in Jane. And so there were a lot of assumptions going around the company. We found that the personas really helped realign toward the actual customer's feelings and behaviors and values. 
And I think it's still, we haven't changed our target. We haven't changed our products. So the customer really is from all my tests since then are still the same. So I'm pushing back on new personas because we don't need a new shiny thing, but also because our data team has gotten so uh, sophisticated. There are ways to use data from our customers to create these algorithmic predictive cohorts is what we call them, not personas, but cohorts. And so it's kind of like journey mapping, but you're understanding that if someone buys this within this amount of time, we can start to predict pretty well what they're going to buy next and how often and how frequent. And I'm finding that's way more useful than like a new persona where the persona is like very directional, but this is really actionable. So I've been working closer with our data team to kind of tie in my qual with their quant. So far it's looking great as far as I'd like, I'd like my boss to go with this instead of just a new persona project because that's going to take months. And I don't know if we get anything new out of it. So that's kind of my POV on, on personas for us at least. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great perspective. And I really like this idea. Can you talk a little more about like what sort of attributes a cohort might embody or what the artifact that represents them looks like? Because the idea of a data-driven cohort, that just immediately sounds very appealing. Uh, yeah, it helps that we have a very homogenous customer base. So all women within like 20 to 40-ish years old, very similar lifestyles, which is represented in our persona. But we kind of realize there are these sub-purchasing groups. Like some people like to buy fancier clothes. Some people avoid the clothes and just buy decor. Some people love comfy clothes. And with that, you start to see these tracks they fall into. They don't cross out of the tracks. So they start buying jeggings and they buy workout shirts. So you start to see, oh, let's start prompting them with yoga mats and little weights versus these stylish people, which will have a different browsing and shopping behavior. And it just kind of came out once we got really good data analytics tools, which we didn't have in the past, we started to see these stories coming out just from the data without anything that I did. And so for that, we're just trying to the lowest hanging fruit to target these people with messaging, with new products, with any features that we have on our site and app. It's kind of automated, so it kind of saves me a lot of time. It's a lot of money, and it's good enough for now. And maybe that's like the the story of Jane is like, what's good enough for now? We haven't really built out anything bigger than that, but that's where we're going with it. Awesome. That seems really exciting. Yeah, it seems like those like individual insights regarding specific behaviors and specific circumstances are so much more valuable than if the purpose of the persona is to like drive empathy that can be done super high level with like very little information. But if the purpose of the persona is to drive design decisions, then that requires this granularity that takes so much effort and trying to be comprehensive in your dictations regarding customer behavior in a persona is just, it seems like to me, it's just insanely difficult. I mean, a one pager that just sums up everything your customers are doing is that seems like a lost cause, especially like at Digicert, we have these highly complex domains where it's such a struggle to understand any individual workflow trying to capture that in a way that's going to like communicate it effectively is just really difficult. Let's see more thoughts on personas or has anybody tried jobs to be done? I mean, that seems like the hot new alternative. So I've seen people do jobs to be done maybe twice. It was super confusing. Like the, what they said, and I know that there's more than one way to do jobs to be done. So I am also very curious to hear the answer to this question. (laughs) set up jobs to be done a few years ago at a company that had some pretty complex tools for property insurance. So for the, like basically the insurance managers, and I'm trying to think, like we basically had it as a spreadsheet. The times that I remember using it 
because we had a lot of stakeholders and a lot of like kind of two, basically two different internal facing tools, like a support tool. And then the, the tool, like another internal tool that would be for the insurance managers. And then the external tool would be for the people applying for insurance. I think it helped us prioritize because we, each of the jobs had a rank and I think it helped us prioritize competing priorities you know, like kind of get them in the right order based on how frequently these jobs were actually being performed and how important they were to the rest of the business. Um, so we had basically a spreadsheet for each of these three audiences. One of them had many, many, many different jobs, and then the other two didn't have as many. But, you know, like the one with many, they didn't do them very frequently. And the one with just a few, they did them a lot. So it really helped us to kind of sort out like what order to build things in. Nice. Sounds like a solid approach. Lauren, did you have specific questions about issues you encountered? So I didn't do the jobs to be done, but I have some questions for Amy. Um, so can you give a few examples of those jobs and what made you prioritize or what helped the business prioritize what order and both the order and the importance? Okay, so the, the one that had a lot of functions or the one that had probably the more important functions was for the the insurance agent who's actually binding the insurance policy. And we had, but we had the rankings for how frequently was like multiple times a day, multiple times a week, and then maybe infrequently. And then the ranking had to do with, is it critical to their main line of business, which is binding an insurance policy? You know, so I think maybe we had like three ratings on that. And I, I don't have, I might have a copy of some of that data somewhere, but I would also have to break out another computer to look for some of that. Cause we just, I think we just had, we probably just had it like in a, yeah, like in, in a spreadsheet, maybe like a Google sheet or something. It helps to reference it and to, you know, like when you're in the discussion of like, what's, what's more important, it really helped me to kind of, well, we agreed that this job right here is very important because someone does it multiple times a day and it's absolutely critical to getting their job of binding this policy in place. So, you know, it just really helped kind of like get rid of some of those discussions that would kind of derail a, a meeting and to just reinforce that, yeah, this is the right thing to do right now. It, was, it would like supplement other information. It wasn't very hard to set up. It was just kind of a brainstorm of like, okay, what's everything this person does? How many times a day do they do it? And it didn't have to be super accurate. We could update it over time, but it was just, you know, a, a dump of like everything they do. So just like view it all out and then start thinking about how frequently they do it. You know, how closely is it related to their core, their core goal? And then it was just a, a really nice resource to have. What is the scale of a job? So is it, is it a job like you go through several screens and you finally get to a button that says done? Oh, what's the definition of a job? Yeah. I don't remember that we had a hard and fast definition about it. I know that we did it as a brainstorm. So like, hey, what's everything that agents have to do in the system? We could spend five minutes and just spit out everything we could think of. And then as we were thinking like how, you know, is this related to, you know, maybe we had a hierarchy, but really we just had one level and is, you know, how, how many times a day do they do this? And, and that also, you know, we didn't do research to find out, well, is it really multiple times a day or multiple times a week? We just kind of guessed and had agreement with, we did it as a smaller group and then had the business was able to look at it and agree with things or, or disagree or contest some of the things that we had put in there. Really? So, you know, really it was a brain dump of jobs and they could be part of a process or they could be an entire process. And then I think we just kind of sorted them as far as like the order of the sequence, if there was any sequence that they would go in. 
So you didn't talk to any participants while you were making this list or, or correct and say, you know, correct. How many times did you do this in a day? One, two, you know, 10 or more sort of thing. Correct. We did have, but we didn't, we didn't have review of, we had, so, so if this was the insurance agents, we had a board that we worked with. So we were able to review it with them. Does this make sense? Like, are we accurate on this? Is there anything we missed? You know, so we we didn't just do it in a silo and like, hey, we're going to use this to to determine priority of projects. We put it together and then, you know, let the board look over it. Like, hey, does this make sense? Is there anything we missed? You know, are these times accurate? When you say who's the board? So we had a board representatives of our entire insurance agent audience that we would do. Kind of nice people that would let us use their time to make the product better. So you had like a representative of each part of the org sit on a board. Well, I mean, so this, this audience was our, they were essentially a customer base. Okay, okay. So part of the business was a tool that insurance agents could use to bind policies if they were working with us. Right. Company was interesting because it was actually an insurance company and a software company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we created a product and created software to access the product. So then we had end users who would use the product yeah. through our software okay. portal. Awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It sounds a lot like a collaborative weighted to-do list or like a weighted decisions matrix sort of thing. A weighted to-do list, I would say, is probably pretty accurate. But anyway, it was kind of fun to put together and I found it useful over time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, mm-hmm. and the collaborative aspect helps everybody get on the same page about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, remember when we all said that this was the most important thing, so we should still prioritize it. <laughs> <laughs> we wrote it down, remember? Uh-huh. You looked at it. You said, yeah. <laughs> we got yeah. signed, and now we get to build it. Thanks, Amy. That's some great context. Yeah, um, I'm glad I could help. Is there anybody I can pick on? How about Aminata? Aminata, hi. <laughs> you want to talk about what your research landscape looks right, like right now? What methods mm-hmm. you use currently? Uh, currently, I've been using, I mean, that's standard methods like survey and interviews. I have classmates because I've been doing this at Hyper Ireland for the last year. We've been doing a design class. We're using actually diary method. And that was uh, when they were doing research on how much or how kids are influenced by how much their parents are reading to them. The parents were asked to keep a diary of how much they read to their children every day. But that was quite interesting because then they could compare the children's capability of reading or how much they love to read and to see if there were any connections with how much the parents read to them. So this, I mean, the diary method, I mean, we've been basically trying out so many different things. And it's been really interesting. And this thing with the personas, (laughs) I know this is a debate in the States. I don't know if it's so much a debate in Europe. It seems those that have been teaching us, that's people working in Spain, Germany, Sweden, they all been using personas. But I mean, it, it seems as if the personas are anyway based on assumptions and just your hypothesis on how people are or what they are or what they are doing and so on, are they really useful? I mean, (laughs) that's a thought that I've been really having on this. Yeah, I think that, so the, if if you have a persona that's not informed by research, that's, I believe that's called a proto persona, right? Um, Yeah. Which is like a more of a conversation starter than maybe like a research artifact. I think, I mean, 
to me, I think they can both be useful in that at least you have like some sort of direction for the product team and some sort of like empathetic being you can sort of target your designs on. That's interesting to hear that in Europe, it's less debated. That being said, I currently teach personas in my class. I currently use personas at DigiCert. So I, I hotly debated in my head and then end up like going back to it all the time. So, but yeah, I, I, I think my personal struggle is just the degree to which a complex domain can be accurately represented with a persona. And maybe that's not even what it's really for. But when I get questions about what we should build, often those questions aren't effectively answered by a persona. And so much time and effort goes into the persona building because it does take a lot of research to get it grounded, to make it not, you know, a stereotype, to make it a real archetype mm. that it seems so, like an inefficient use of resources. Would you say that it depends on what you're trying to answer? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> it goes back to it depends, right? All goes back to it depends. Yeah. That's the great answer always. It depends. <laughs> I can post in, in the chat something. This is uh, some method cards that uh, we were exploring. <laughs> and uh, there is a list of many interesting and useful tools, just as an input to the discussion. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That's so great. I want to talk a little more about personas because I think it, it merits talking about a little bit more. So after our persona project, we found five main personas. We zeroed in on two of them who are the two who spend the most money in our product. Those were followed up by research projects like what do they need? What do they want in the product? You know, how do we zero in on creating an experience on the back of site that's specific for those personas and their needs? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just the persona project, it, it's not like research ends after you're done. It's right. like, it gives you, it gets everybody on the same page and it gives direction, but it's not necessarily about a specific product decision. I think part of our job is to make sure others understand the frictions and limitations of our research. And so for personas, it's important to say, yes, you can use a persona for this. Oh, it's not the best use for that. And building walls around that if they're making decisions that you feel are not a good interpretation from a persona or they're too far extrapolated, I think it's important to say, no, let's do this other test. Let's leave the persona alone and let's run a, a sort or a cohort test or something like that. And um, the results there will be more relevant to what you're looking for. Just kind of making sure they don't take the personas too far, which could cause problems as far as what Lauren is saying for building products and such. Yeah, definitely. Can I, can I ask a question? Yeah. How would you propose to perform a cohort test? What we're doing with our cohorts is it's kind of being pushed by the data. So we're finding these collections of data that were similar and that's how they were built out. If I could go back in time with the current data team I had now, we started off with four personas, which has been narrowed down to two. I would have liked to see the two sub personas we abandoned be the seeds for data or analysis. And so for that, we split off our repeat customers to stylish and value buyers. And I think those are very visible in the data as well. We've just backed into it now, but I think we could have been more proactive. Like I said, we didn't have that team back then, but that's how I would have started that. What was your analysis yeah, process? Thank you to get to value customers versus stylish customers? We saw a very significant difference in the attitudes and behaviors of brand new customers versus the ones we keep. As far as how they use the site, what they like and don't like, any complaints. From that, there was enough of a significant difference with those repeats to get those two very different buying patterns out. Just to explain what they mean, uh, Jane is an online 
kind of budget retailer for clothes, think like a TJ Maxx online. Some people come to us because we have really cute and unique products for a great deal, but they're not as worried about the price. Other people, the other split was they like the price over anything. So we had this cute product buyer and everything that they loved and what kind of motivated them to come back to us versus the price deal couponing kind of person was that other subcategory. And that's how that broke out. And then looking now, if you go through like their purchase histories, you can see that difference as far as what they buy on a regular basis. If it's kind of basics and cheap things, kind of funnel them into that value side. If it's accessory pieces, jewelry, or we now offer pre-owned luxury products, definitely not a, a good deal, but they find it a good value. So you kind of see the split out. So what I'm asking is like, how did you come across the sense making process? Did you take a look at everything customers did and, and then you tried organizing it by different things, like how long they've been a customer or how many things they've purchased or their purchase, you know, the average purchase price. And then you looked for patterns. Like how did, like, how did the sense making process take place that, that you came across these findings? And this is for like the original personas that did not this data cohort that I oh, I'm talking to cohorts, yeah. Oh, about the, yeah, it's um, through, not just, I'm not going to take any, all the responsibility for it. The data team has done a really good job at pulling out data points. And they were starting to see these things as far as pulling the purchase data by category, subcategory and frequency, for example, or by the average order value and frequency. So these kind of things if you look at our customers, some are here like once every six weeks, others are every day. Uh, that all plays into it as well. And so just kind of starting to take all these pieces of data that we're pulling from each purchase, which we can sort through, thankfully, and starting to see, okay, there are different kinds of people using the site. I guess I, maybe I misled anyone saying they're very homogenous. They are in like ethnicity and demographics, but they are not in like purchasing beliefs and powers and stuff. And so hopefully that answers it. If not, just shoot me a little chat. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm taking up a lot of time talking as well. So I feel bad. <laughs> no, this is great. This is sorry. What, this is what the platform is meant for. This is great. Anita, what are your thoughts on personas? My boot camp really harped on personas. We spent a really long time in that section of our education. Definitely had classmates who spent even more time like creating these artifacts that were very beautiful for the persona. But then as to Sean's point, it was like, we didn't really know what to do with them next. We didn't really know how to apply them appropriately. So we thought, you know, we'd have these personas and then start creating apps or a responsive website according to like that persona. But it was like, is this really the thing that we should be doing with this tool? Like, did we even execute this properly? Because again, we have a beautiful artifact, but what is the validity of the data? And how far can this data like carry us into the designs and into the application? So I would say it was a pretty frustrating experience uh, going into, a, a, again, a design-centric bootcamp and then specializing in research afterwards. I don't know if we've touched on this before in maybe a previous session, but just like we at Vivint have some, they're several years old, even before mine and Dan's time, possibly before Yan's time, they have not been updated. They're largely not talked about. So something that I've been wrestling with in my own mind, especially considering my level is like, is this something I want to pursue to consider, you know, like level up as a researcher, like be really well-versed in this thing. When the consensus is, it's hard to get buy-in. It's hard to, uh, again, update them. It's hard to apply them. <laughs> so a lot of things are pointing at no, but I still think it's useful to understand I think the cohort approach is really attractive actually. And I think archetypes rather than 
personas have more, not necessarily scope, but like carry further than like personas, if that makes any sense. I would like to add to that, that it's really like being in a boot camp or being in some type of course, a lot of, the, at least from my experience and from people that I heard, a lot of the, the experience with personas is, is assumptions. Like there, it's you. You're not actually doing any uh, ethnography research, or interviews, or like exploration interviews for the persona. It's just kind of like, okay, this is who we think is the user, and let's go with that. And then, like for me, we had a very general client for my boot camp, and trying to figure out the persona, even with talking to the to the stakeholder, was so difficult because all you say is like, I don't know, whoever wants to buy, like it was a marketplace, and I'm like. Like he didn't really have his own vision. So we were just like thrown in there. And I also, I also agree with anything about the cohort seems really attractive as a thing, like more of an archetypes, like have more of um, who are the types, who are the groups that are, that are coming, that are using this product. Especially when it's like data-driven, quantitative and behavioral, right? Those things are all so often what personas are not. I feel like every persona project I've been involved with doesn't have a survey component, isn't a mixed methods approach. It's always interviews. Mine might have been interview driven, but it's qualitative, right? Jared Spool says research like to the point of least astonishing enlightenment. So you'd have it like just do interviews till the patterns emerge and then stop when they stop merging. And it's like, okay, but that doesn't necessarily represent the entire like user base. I don't know. And when you think about like when personas emerged as a tool, this is like Alan Cooper. When was it like 70s, 80s? And IDEOs like design thinking. I don't know what framework you were taught in your boot camp, Anita, but like it seems like the problem back then was that just nobody had ever thought of designing something with a person in mind. And when you think about what personas are really good at, they're really good at solving like problems that everybody can grasp instantly that have like not got solutions applied to them yet. I feel like personas are really good at that. And like when you have a problem space, like a traveling app for musicians or something where it's just like a unique group whose problems are pretty easy to understand with a small number of interviews. It works really, really well to drive design decisions and inspire empathy. But like when you talk about like, I don't know, IT admins for certificate authority buyers, it's like, well, understanding that problem details way more important for our design decisions than just having empathy for somebody. But we're at time. So <laughs> I guess we'll end on my rant. Thank you everyone for coming. Good to see new faces. Good to see old faces. We'll see you at the next one. A big thanks to David Moore, Anita English, and Juliet Stinson for their discussion, and again to Lucid for hosting the event. If you learned some things from their conversation, be sure to share it with your team, or share it on Twitter, and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.